Hello, and welcome to the Green Leads Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Rizzo. Today's topic is something that I know is going to be of interest to a lot of people. We are talking about all things sugar. And I have a really awesome guest to dive into this topic with us. Samantha Cassidy is a registered dietitian, and she is the author of the book, Sugar Shock, which goes into everything you've ever wanted to know about sugar. So she's here to walk us through tons of different questions that I have about sugar. Sam is a nationally recognized food, nutrition, and wellness expert. She's a columnist for today.com, and she used to be the nutrition director for Good Housekeeping and the nutrition correspondent for Drop 5 Pounds with Good Housekeeping on the Cooking Channel. Like I said before, she's the co-author of Sugar Shock, and she's a contributor to the New York Times bestseller, Seven Years Younger, and the follow-up, Seven Years Younger, The Anti-Aging Breakthrough Diet. She has her master's in clinical nutrition from Boston University, and she resides here in New York City with with me. Well, not in the same household, but you know what I mean. She's in New York City. We chatted about so many interesting things. We talked about the difference between natural and added sugar. Can you have too much sugar from fruit? What about dried fruit? We talked about sugar cravings. We talked about different types of sugar like coconut sugar, brown rice syrup, molasses, maple syrup. Does it make a difference? Is one healthier than the other? We dived into artificial sweeteners and things like monk fruit and stevia. And then whether or not sugar is actually okay for athletes, because a lot of sports drinks have sugar. So we kind of talked about the difference between people who are athletes and people who aren't, and whether or not sports drinks are something that you should incorporate into your training diet. We also talked about the glycemic index and whether or not athletes should actually care about that. This was an incredibly interesting conversation. I learned a lot. I know that you're going to learn a lot and I'm really excited for you guys to listen. So we're going to jump right into that chat. Hi, Sam. Thanks so much for joining the podcast. I'm really excited to chat about all things sugar today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here with you. I always love yeah. chatting with you. I love chatting with you. And I we were kind of talking about this before we hopped on, but sugar is kind of a divisive topic because uh, I'm not the I'm not afraid to admit I don't love talking about it because I have gotten a lot of backlash in some of the things I've said about sugar because there are certain people who think that you shouldn't have any sugar and then there are certain people who think we should just let people have sugar and it's very hard to find the middle ground so I kind of want to go through all the facts about sugar and ask you a bunch of questions and kind of see where we come out here. Perfect and I would just add to that that um, with anything regarding anything that you eat or any healthy habit that you are trying to participate in, it, it's always the middle ground is always going to be the best place to live. It's never about totally eliminating or going full force into one healthy habit or totally diving in and ignoring the science and biology. It's always that middle place where you're going to function opti- optimally and healthfully and feel, you know, unrestricted, but also, you know, energetic and your best. 
Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I think it's also confusing because there's different types of sugars, right? So there's natural sugar, which is the sugar that's inherent in things like fruits and vegetables. And then there's added sugar, which is added to foods. And what I think is confusing is people want to know, does the body break down both of these types of sugars in the same way? And if so, why are we kind of saying that and by we, I mean, a lot of times dietitians kind of say like, nat <laughs> natural sugar is fine to have. So can you kind of talk about that difference there? Yeah. So when we're talking about natural sugar, we're talking, um, as you said, like sugar from fruit, uh, the sugar lactose that's in milk. And um, the sugar in these foods is, you know, typically in very small amounts. And it comes packed with other nutrients for example, um, vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, fiber or protein. And when you eat those types of foods, you're getting all of those things. And because you're either getting that protein from, for example, milk or fiber from fruit, whatever sugar is you know, naturally present in those foods is absorbed slowly and does not cause the same impact as added sugars um, that you consume in other forms. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and I, I mean, just to play devil's advocate here, what about a banana? Doesn't a banana have a lot of sugar? Oh my gosh. The, the question about sugar in fruit is one of my pet peeves because it's such a misplaced concern. I think when we talk about added sugars, um, I always try to be super clear. I am talking about what the manufacturer adds to foods. So th those foods could be anything from like a healthy seeming whole grain bread or a flavored oatmeal or cereal or yogurt or a granola bar or soda, uh, blended coffee drinks. Those are some of the top, top sources of added sugars in our diet besides the things you think about like dessert and, you know, candy. So when you are taking steps to stay within healthy added sugar ranges, you're really looking at those added sugars. And so fruit, you know, eating a banana, whether you eat a banana or a mango or berries, um, all of those foods have different superpowers, all of the fruits and vegetables. And so I think the concern about a sugary fruit is very misplaced. Okay, and I had a question later on for you about whether or not it's possible to eat, quote unquote, too much fruit, or sometimes people also think dried fruit. And let's talk, I, I mean, with dried fruit, I know there are ones that have added sugar, and then there's ones that don't have added sugar. But let's say the ones that don't have added sugar that are just fruit, and it's dried, is it possible to have too much of those things, too much of a good thing? So, I mean, I always look at this in the context of your overall diet. What would you be eating instead of that piece of fruit? So, like, if the answer is, well, I'd be having a cookie, then 1,000% have the fruit. So I think that um, it really depends on how you're consuming that food. And then also, you know, what are your goals? And so... Um, I think, you know, to personalize it towards those situations makes a lot of sense. But for the most part, I think, you know, people need at least two servings of fruit every day. And some people who are, you know, participating in um, sports or, you know, uh, running or walking or whatever, they might need a little bit more. Also, if you're hungry and going a long stretch between meals and 
the day calls for an additional snack, fruit is going to be a healthier choice than a lot of the other things that you could be eating instead. So I think when it comes to nutrition and this question in particular, it's always about what is it, you know, what could you be eating instead? And is this a healthier choice? And in most cases, fruit is going to be healthier than many other things that are convenient and snackable that you might choose instead. That's actually exactly what I say. If a banana is replacing a Snickers bar, then the banana is obviously much healthier. It's the winner. Than, yeah, exactly. And that's, it's totally true. We, a lot of people don't eat enough fruit as it is. So exactly. if you think about a lot, the other nutrients. Yeah, it's 80% yeah. of people who are under consuming fruit. So the worry about over consuming fruit is especially misplaced. Yeah, and we know that there's people aren't getting enough fiber in their diet. So when you think of all the good things that are in there, the amount of natural sugar is just not really a big concern for a lot of nutrition professionals. I would agree. And then the, the thing about the dried fruit, the only difference there is that the water has been removed, right? So the portion size shrinks. So where you might have like a cup of grapes, you would have a quarter cup of raisins. Um, and so the, the difference there is just that it might be less filling for you. Um, and so that might be something to be mindful of. But typically in studies, when they're looking at people who are eating dried fruits, it, there doesn't seem to be anything tied to weight problems or really any problems. <laughs> um, and again, as we know, you know, people are are under fruiting, they're not over fruiting. And I can just tell you on a personal level, I eat dried mangoes, dates, you know, freeze dried berries, I eat all the dried fruits. Yeah, no, I do too. And I always recommend them as a pre workout snack. It's a really good form of energy that you're able to digest quickly. So I'm a huge fan of those types of things. Um, and I also wanted to touch on something else that you talk about in your book, Sugar Shock. You mentioned something called the sugar cycle, which you refer to as eating sugar tricks your brain into wanting more sugar. How do you break that cycle? Yeah. And so, um, I mean, this is the huge problem. And this is why I always recommend staying in that healthier range, um, which just for people's, you know, just to help them give help people have context here. It's the recommendations are six teaspoons per day for women and nine teaspoons per day for men. And since there are roughly four grams of sugar per teaspoon, we're looking at 25 grams per day for women and 36 grams per day for men. And so if you're constantly going above that, it's very hard to manage your cravings and break that cycle. So one of the things that you can do is to start out eating something protein rich in the morning. So like it, that could be with an oatmeal or cereal or something, but to include a balanced, um, you know, breakfast that has protein. When they look at MRI scans of people who eat that protein rich breakfast, it shows that the cravings areas in the brain are have lower activity. Um, and that protein rich breakfast also helps keep you fuller longer and other studies suggest it may result in less snacking and overeating in general. So that's going to be a good first step. Um, it's also really important to get into an eating routine. So if you're skipping meals or eating erratically, going, you know, a long time between meals, you know, you're, it causes your blood sugar to sort of dip, you get too hungry, and then it's going to be really hard to stay on top of those cravings. Um, I'm sure you recommend a lot staying hydrated that helps here too. One thing that I think surprises people is how sleep and uh, sugar cravings are connected. So if you aren't sleeping well, 
um, it intensifies your cravings for sweets. You will deem those sugary foods especially rewarding. They'll light up your brain um, and say, tell you you want more of them, that that was awesome. So you really need to pay attention to how much you're sleeping. And if you're not sleeping well, you're not getting deep sleep, you're not sleeping for that seven to nine hours, then you want to put some attention toward your sleep schedule and your sleep habits to work on that. And then I think one of the last things is um, really to pinpoint where, you know, how cravings show up for you? When are you most vulnerable to craving? So during the pandemic, for example, you know, one of the things I hear most often is it's really working from home that makes people vulnerable to extra trips to the kitchen out of boredom or, you know, a change of scenery. And so that might leave you more vulnerable to snacking. And if you have, you know, sugary snacks around, you might be consuming those more than you had planned. So understand when you're vulnerable and plan ahead so that you have ways to address those emotions that are going to be more helpful in the long run. So I just talked to a client and I said, when you go into the kitchen, it's really just pausing and saying, you know, is it, am I hungry, which is a physical sensation or am I tired? Am I bored? Am I stressed? And then you, it's a fork in the road. It's time to make a decision. Are you going to eat? That's one decision. And that's always a, a choice you have. But another choice might be, you know, listening to music, stepping outside for a minute, um, doing a stretch. You know, there are other choices. And knowing what some of those are in advance, you know, might steer you towards those choices. Um, and that will help you manage your cravings in the long run. I actually had someone reach out to me recently who uh, switched to a plant-based diet, which happens a lot because I specialize in plant-based diets. And she said since she did so, she was craving sugar a lot and asked me why that is happening. And I did not know the answer just from the question, but I said, I suspect that you're probably not eating enough protein. And that, so that kind of a, uh, clarifies what you said earlier. I think that that happens a lot with people who don't switch to plant-based diets and don't eat that much protein at first. Sometimes they crave sugar. And uh, in talking about, we talked a lot about cravings. Why do people get sugar cravings? What I know it's something in the brain. I know it's kind of scientific, but is there a way you can kind of break it down so we can understand exactly what sugar cravings are? Yeah. So I think there, first of all, there's a lot of factors at play. So it never boils down to like one specific thing. I mentioned, for example, that sleep really appetite, uh, really alters your appetite regulating hormones, um, which means that not only are you hungrier, but your fullness gets delayed. So it takes longer for that your brain to say, Hey, I've had enough to eat here. And on top of that, your brain is saying, hey, I really enjoyed that sweet snack, like more so than I did yesterday. So, <laughs> um, so those are some of the ways that, um, you know, sleep can impact your cravings. Also, sugar acts on pathways in the brain that are associated with addiction. And this is where, you know, the debate gets super heated. It is not to say that you have the same exact reaction to sugary foods that you would have from like, you know, something more seriously addictive, like nicotine or cocaine, you're not experiencing the same reactions. Um, however, 
it's you it's associated with the same part of the brain that is responsible for those addictive um, behaviors and cravings. And so what happens when you eat foods that are sugary, it's basically lighting up those pathways and telling you, hey, that felt pretty good. I would like more of that. And so the as you continue to feed that desire, um, your tolerance to sugar does diminish in a way that makes you want even more of it. Uh, or uh, rather, I'm sorry, your tolerance builds in a way that makes you want even more of it. So it takes more sugar to get that, hey, that feels good response. Um, and so that's another sort of like, you know, area that um, is tied with cravings. And then I think, you know, one of the other main things to think about is because sugar shows up in so many different foods, even ones that we think of as healthy, like oat milk, for example, um, you're basically training your taste buds that something plain is not acceptable. And so if you switch to like, for example, an unsweetened oat milk, it would taste different. And you might think, well, I really liked the other one better. Um, and you get used to that. So like plain water might not taste so great. Regular ordinary fruit might not taste as delicious. You really train your taste buds that something sweet is uh, more desirable. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. And also it made me think of exercise because exercise has the same response in the brain, but of course you have to do more work to go out and do <laughs> some sort of exercise. So there are other ways that you can have that happy response and you know make your body feel good, but going in your kitchen and eating a chocolate bar is a little bit easier than going for a mile run or whatever it is. So that, uh, yeah, that's, it's funny how food works within the brain. I think it, and then the other thing is, you know, we, we haven't even really touched on uh, how our environments set us up. So basically we're living in this like round the clock food environment where um, even if we weren't working at home, which does make it harder because you have that fully stocked kitchen, you know, right nearby, but you know, you're scrolling Instagram and you're seeing pictures of donuts and cupcakes and ice cream and delicious foods and you watch TV and they show up on your TV and maybe you walk down the street and you pass, you know, an ice cream shop or a convenience store, or you go to the checkout counter to buy, you know, Advil and there's a gazillion candy bars lined up. So our environments also really trigger um, some of this. And then there's also this like nostalgia, um, how we associate, you know, sugary foods. So for example, maybe your mom used to bake chocolate chip cookies when you'd get home from school. And so you just have this like really warm, loving sense every time you smell a chocolate chip cookie. So there's, you know, there's different levels of cravings and different ways that they um, influence us, but there's a lot of factors that influence cravings. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point about social media because one of the questions I had for you was talking about different types of sugar. And I think when you look at the media, sometimes you see things like coconut sugar is good for you or this is good for you. But when we look at different types of sugar, table sugar, agave, brown rice syrup, maple syrup, 
are they different? Is one better for you than the other? Or, or are they all the same? So they all produce more or less the same response in your body, which is, you know, it enters your bloodstream, insulin kicks in to say, hey, let's get that over to the cells where it can be used. Um, if, if you have too much, it's going to start to promote storage of fat, um, of the added, added sugar. So any sugar, when eaten in excess, is producing that same response. Insulin is kicking in. It's either going into the cells or, um, or being stored as a type of fat. So when, it, when you eat too much of it and it starts to build up in your bloodstream, insulin it's working really hard. Um, your cells are then sort of overloaded. They might say, hey, hold on. We're not ready for that sugar yet. And the sugar could build up in your bloodstream, which ultimately could put you at risk of prediabetes or type 2 diabetes. Um, and uh, ultimately, you know, you, you may, your pancreas may tire out and you may need medication to help with that. Um, so all types of sugar, whether it is maple syrup, whether it is honey, whether it's agave, whether it's table sugar, all types of sugar when eaten in excess can promote that response and put you at risk of uh, you know, future disease. However, this is where I think things do get a little tricky, um, especially maple syrup and honey do have some interesting properties. They have some antioxidants. Um, they have some, like honey has some um, antibiotic properties, anti-inflammatory properties. They have like these bioactive compounds that do have a health promoting effect. However, when you eat these foods in excess, you know, you're canceling out any of the benefits, which um, because of the risk of the other things that you're setting yourself up for. So in total, all sugars, whether they are these, you know, less processed versions or more processed versions should be limited to those um, targets I mentioned, which is six teaspoons a day for women and nine teaspoons a day for men. Yeah. And we also have to remember that certain sugars like maple syrup and honey do add flavor to food. So that's why I use them a lot of times. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what I always tell people. This is not like about eliminating flavor. This is not about even eliminating sugar. You can have some, it's just consistently going above the recommended amount is, um, you know, sets you up for risk for future problems. Um, and on top of like the problems that I mentioned, prediabetes, type two diabetes, heart disease, um, it, a, a sugary diet is also tied with sleep problems, with mood disorders, like depression and anxiety, um, with memory problems. So there's a lot of um, ways that it might be impacting your body and, and your well-being. And this is kind of already a confusing and somewhat murky topic, but I'm going to make it even more confusing because I'm going <laughs> to ask you, I'm going to ask you about artificial sugars and then also stevia and monk fruit, which are technically not considered artificial, but are zero calorie. It's all, there's a lot of them out there and it, it's a little bit 
like I said, confusing. So I read that artificial sugars can make you hungrier and maybe also increase your sugar cravings, but they also come with the benefit of being zero calories and zero added sugar. So kind of what's your take on the artificial ones? And then also, <laughs> can you touch on stevia and monk fruit, which are technically not considered artificial, but are also the zero calorie? I know that's a, a large question to wrap that all <laughs> in there, but um, what, what are your thoughts on all of those? Yeah. So, okay. We'll take the artificial sweeteners first. So um, when in studies, as you point out, um, they might not have the benefit that people think they have. So yes, they do not have any carbs and they do not have any calories. However, um, in some studies, it's shown that basically when you eat something that's artificially sweetened or have a diet soda or something like that, your brain is expecting some calories to go along with that. And so, you know, it's kind of like confused by the sense that it's had something super, super sweet and there's no calorie payoff. Um, and so that might lead to overeating um, and it, it might, you know, not help you manage your weight. So I think like if that is a, um, if, the, if that's the reason why you're doing it, you know, know that that might not be as helpful as you might think. Um, the other thing is those artificial sweeteners, you know, there are questions about whether they raise the risk of heart disease and stroke. So that's, you know, also something to think about. So I think, you know, with either, whether you're choosing something sugary or something with artificial sugars, it makes sense to uh, keep tabs on both of those things. So you don't want to go overboard on either of them. You know, if you're having a diet soda every once in a while, I wouldn't sweat it. If you're having multiple diet sodas a day and you're putting, you know, an artificial sweetener in your coffee or your tea, and that's, you know, adding up, um, then I think it's worth also examining your overall sort of sweet tooth and um, taking steps to reduce, you know, your usage or reliance on those foods and uh, those forms of artificial sweeteners. Now, I like to think of stevia and monk fruit. Um, these are sort of, these are plant derived sweeteners, but of course they are processed. Like you're not eating the, the stevia leaf. <laughs> um, in, in theory, these may be safer or maybe more natural um, than the artificial sweeteners, but they really truthfully haven't been studied also to the same degree. So a lot of the studies on these uh, artificial sweeteners come from diet sodas and diet soda drinking. And so, you know, the diet soft drinks tend to have a lot of the artificial sweeteners Whereas these sort of newer stevia, monk fruit, um, these are sort of newer sweeteners. So, but my advice is really the same. I think a little bit of any of these is going to be okay in the context of an otherwise healthy diet. But if you're constantly relying on these foods to feed a sweet tooth, then it's worth examining your overall sweet tooth. I think it's also confusing because uh, when you look at labels, I was actually just at my parents' house and my mom had this vanilla Greek yogurt and I tasted it and it was so incredibly sweet. And then I looked at the label and it said zero grams of sugar. And I was like, I don't understand how this makes any sense. And then you start reading it and it has stevia in it, which is extremely sweet. 
but doesn't technically count as a gram of sugar. So it's almost confusing in a way when sometimes people don't even know that they're having it. And then because certain things can be marketed in certain ways. So I think it's also just kind of like, like you said before, thinking about how much sweet food am I eating in a day? Exactly. And also what's, you know, is there an opportunity to help my taste buds adjust to, to plainer food? So for example, in the case of yogurt, one of my favorite tricks is to take, you know, some frozen blueberries or raspberries or whatever it is and heat it up for 30 seconds in the microwave. And it gets really juicy because the, the um, water crystals that were ice in the, in the freezer um, release. And so when you stir that into yogurt, you get all that fruit forward flavor. It's like, it makes that fruity color swirl like you would get in a packaged yogurt, but you're not adding any added sugar and you're getting all the benefits of getting that fruit in um, and getting that fiber. So I think when you are consistently reaching for sweetened foods where there is a plain option, um, that there's an opportunity to explore that plain option and figure out if there's a way to doctor it up uh, that would be almost just as appealing to you um, and help you sort of reduce both the added sugars and the artificial sweeteners. That is definitely a pro tip. And I've never once thought about that as a recipe developer and a dietitian. I'm almost like mad at myself that I've never thought <laughs> to kind of melt the, the fruit to put, I, I mean, obviously I put fruit in yogurt, but if you stick it in the microwave, that kind of breaks down the natural sugar in the fruit. Yeah. And that's essentially what you're doing, which that is a really good tip. I'm definitely going to try that. <laughs> I, I, like I said, I'm mad at myself for never thinking of it before. And that's why you're on here talking about sugar. <laughs> So exactly. I, uh, and I actually use that. You could stir it into oatmeal. You could top your pancakes with it. Um, you could add a spoonful of chia seeds and thicken it up and use it on top of toast. So that's my favorite hack. Okay. That's a great one. Uh, I'm going to move into kind of sports nutrition stuff because it's different in sports nutrition because sugar is a form of carbs. And for people who do endurance events like run marathons and whatnot, they need to replace carbs after a certain period of time because those carbs are what give you energy. So that's why sports drinks have sugar in them. And that's why sports drinks like Gatorade were actually developed for athletes with a purpose and they're formulated for athletes. And you can make your own sports drink. I actually just posted a one on my Instagram today, but I tell people to add sugar to it, like add honey, add maple syrup, because you need that in there. So it's, it's a very confusing gray area, I think. Um, and I, I try to dispel the myth that sugar in sports drinks is quote unquote bad for athletes since it helps them with their carb intake. And then it also helps them take in the fluids that they need. Exactly. So what do you, what do you think about sugar for athletes? And I mean, I just went through it and obviously said it is beneficial in some capacity, but is there a way that you can kind of overdo it too? So, I mean, I think, um, first of all, I'm totally aligned with you. And actually that's my other pet peeve is sports drinks without added sugars <laughs> because you need the sugar in those circumstances. You need, you know, to help with, as you said, the carb replacement and also to help you absorb all that fluid. 
So it serves a purpose there. And those sports drinks have been optimally designed to serve that function. I think in the case of, I think athletes are a special case. And, um, you know, certainly it makes sense to monitor the sugars that you're taking in elsewhere, but not to avoid those drinks when you need them. However, I think those drinks are often overused by non-athletes. So if you've, you know, been on your, your spin bike for an hour, you probably don't need a sports drink. Um, particularly if you've been drinking water the whole time and maybe your next meal is, you know, around the corner. So I think um, that's the other thing is like sort of uh, being honest with yourself <laughs> about your activity levels. If you're exercising for, you know, let's say an hour and a half or longer, um, particularly if you get drenched in sweat, like maybe you are on that spin bike, but you notice there's like a, a large puddle underneath you. Um, if it's really hot where you're exercising or humid, um, you know, those are conditions that would necessitate a sports drink. But, you know, if you're going for a walk or taking even like a three mile run, or as I said, hopping on the spin bike or doing a little yoga, or your kid is in little league, um, mostly standing still, or maybe that was just my kid, <laughs> then you don't probably need the added sugars in those circumstances. And I don't know, would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. And it's interesting you said about the sports drinks without sugar, because I, I wrote an article for Shape, which I'll put in the show notes about sports drinks and what they do and what to look for. And as part of it, I've researched all the different types out on the market. And there are so, so, so many. And there are electrolyte tablets, there's sports drinks, there's zero calorie sports drinks, there's sports drinks with artificial sweetener. And most of them are not true sports drinks, which are for athletes and should have a certain amount of sodium and should have a certain amount of sugar. So it's interesting. It's kind of almost like the stevia. It's good marketing in a way, some of them. It's it's not necessarily what it's intended for. Well, they're aspirational, right? Because I mean, when I'm sitting on my spin bag, I'd like to think that I'm an athlete too. <laughs> <laughs> you are. But if I have you... an honest conversation with myself, I probably know that's really not the case. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And you touched on something that I wasn't even going to ask you, but now I'm going to throw it in there. Sports drinks for kids. Do you, do you have any um, opinions on whether or not kids say kids are athletes, say they, they play soccer for two hours a day. Is that something that should be a part of their diet? So, I mean, so for kids, um, and I, this is sort of outside of the question, but kids under two should have no added sugars. It doesn't mean that you can't give your kid a birthday cupcake, you know, once a year, or every now and then, but for their day-to-day -day diets, no added sugars for kids under two. That was uh, from the latest dietary guidelines. Um, the American Heart Association, in conjunction with the American Academy of Pediatrics, recommends that kids' uh, added sugar intake is in line with the targets for women. So that six teaspoons or 25 grams per day. Um, for Now back to the question. For kids who are participating in sports, it's the same guidelines really as adults. And those are, um, again, if you are... Uh, participating in constant activity for an hour and a half or more. If your conditions are really hot or humid, um, 
if you're getting really sweaty, then those situations call for a sports drink. But the reality is that sports drinks are very overused in kids. And if your kid is playing two hours of soccer, but a lot of that time is spent on the on the bench or some of that time is spent on the bench or standing around, you know, waiting for the ball to come, then that's not two hours of prolonged activity and wouldn't require more than water and a snack after, um, water throughout and a snack after. So I think that it's really, again, sort of taking an honest look at the levels of activity, how prolonged they are, um, as well as some of the conditions. And I will say the concern is, especially with kids, getting kids used to a very sugary drink like that when it's not needed, again, trains their taste buds in a way that makes fruits and vegetables and other healthy whole foods a lot less appealing and acceptable to them. So, um, and even plain water or plain milk, they're always gonna want that, you know, flavor hit that they experience when they have something sweet, like a sports drink. Yeah. That's interesting about the kids under two, no added sugar. I mean, I don't have kids, but that's gotta be nearly impossible. When you think about the fact that sugar is in bread and in sauces and things, it's in a lot of foods, unless you feed them entirely whole foods, which most likely you should, but I know a lot of people don't that that's, that's, I'm sure that's difficult for a lot of parents. Yeah. And I think, you know, I wouldn't take that to be the mandate of like the little bit that flips in here and there, I think is probably okay. I think the bigger concern is going to be like sweetened yogurt, sweetened cereal. Um, You know, those are foods that kids rely as, as a big part of rely on as a big part of their diets. And they're also, you know, some sugary foods. So I think going for plain versions of oatmeal, yogurt, cereal, that's going to do a good job right there. Also the beverages. So I don't know about you, but how often do you see kids, you know, in strollers with a soda bottle in their hand or a parent, you know, pouring a soda or a sports drink or lemonade into a sippy cup? Those are the types of added sugars that I would try to avoid if you have um, those young kids. It's really like the beverages, um, cookies, candies, dessert foods, ice cream, and those uh, sweetened cereals, yogurts. Start there, you know, and be a lot less worried about those occasional desserts. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and I'm I'm going to backtrack back to sports nutrition because I, I get a lot of questions that this isn't necessarily about sugar, but it's about the glycemic index. I get a lot of questions about the glycemic index of food. For instance, let's say a potato, which technically has more natural sugar or a banana, they're a lot higher on the glycemic index as compared to something that maybe doesn't have as much sugar. Do you ever talk about glycemic index with people? Do you think that it's something that they should worry about? Should they even think about this? I My kind of bottom line is that I tell people unless they have diabetes, they shouldn't worry about it because that's what the glycemic index was created for to help people with diabetes choose the right foods. But I'm interested to hear your take on it. Yeah, so I think that it's not that helpful. Like it's confusing. How do you, how in a given moment, from one moment to the next, do you really know what the glycemic index is of what you're eating? I don't think we need to overcomplicate our food decisions. We make about 200 food decisions every day. Let's keep it simple. Um, 
the other thing is, you know, it what you serve with that food matters more than the individual food itself. So like, let's take a banana. If you were to put peanut butter on that banana, it changes the glycemic load of the meal, which is going to be more important in terms of how it, um, how slowly it enters and exits your bloodstream and so on. So um, I don't find those particularly useful tools. I think a more useful indicator is um, for those carbohydrate containing foods, is it a whole food? For example, fruit, vegetable, bean, you know, uh, whole, whole grain, starchy vegetable. If you're eating whole foods um, and you're eating balanced meals, meaning like, do you have some protein at that meal? Do you have some fat at that meal? Is there more, veg are there more vegetables on your plate than anything else? Um, those are to me better indicators or like it's easier to sort of eat in accordance with healthy um, glycemic loads and uh, managing added sugar intake and pretty much everything if you just focus on a few simple things. Yeah. And I also think combining different macros, like you're talking about having some nut butter with a banana uh, regulates blood sugar release. Exactly. I think that's another thing. People are very concerned about spikes in blood sugar. And I think that's where the glycemic index concern comes from because spike in blood sugar a lot of times is related to an energy crash afterwards or other, I guess, bad things. <laughs> so <laughs> when you pair certain foods together, that's most likely not going to happen. Exactly. And you know, the truth is like, again, people, even the idea of like macros is so divisive, but eating, I, I always just say, eat a mix of foods at each meal. Like you want to have some protein at your meals. Again, you want to have more vegetables than anything else at meals. You want to have some fat at your meals, um, some, you know, whole food carbohydrate sources at your meals. Um, and the reason that you want all of these things is because it gives you all the energy that you need. It gives you more vitamins, minerals, those protective plant compounds. Um, these foods, those getting those nutrients can impact your mood. They can impact your disease risk. So there's a ton of reasons why you want it. It makes keeps you fuller longer. Um, you know, will will help prevent those energy crashes. So. To me, that's what balanced eating is all about. It's making sure that you're not um, going for one food group at the expense of another. I feel like I say this on every episode, but when it comes to nutrition, it it's not always sexy. It's really about moderation. <laughs> it's really about eating whole foods. We're here to break down the science and kind of give you that information. But at the end of the day, it's really just about making good food choices where you kind of buy the, the, the whole food, stay away from the processed stuff, try to do things in moderation. I mean, things that people have heard a million times before. Yeah. And I don't want to discount the fact that those are still hard concepts. Like the idea that you could maybe one day eat a piece of pizza and then, the, you know, the next day you might not want to eat the piece of pizza. I think those are like very hard concepts because when you eat processed foods, you know, they're, they're more appealing to you in many ways. If you're not used to eating or haven't had access or haven't tried a lot of the whole foods and the types of things that we're talking about. So I, it's the concept itself is simple, but I don't want to discount the fact that in that embracing it or putting it into practice is as easy as we make it sound, but that's why you have people like us around to help. Yeah. And that's a really good point because I do think when 
you hear people talk about certain things like this and just kind of break down the facts about something like sugar, you may almost get discouraged because it sounds like it's easy, but I do think it's really, really important to point out this is not an easy thing to do. Like we talked about before, the sugar craving and cutting down your sugar. I think people need to understand that this is going to take trial and error and you may have to, you know, get back on the horse 10 times before something sticks. And that's totally okay. 1000%. And I'd like to think about I'm big on analogy. So I like to think about like different analogies. So one of them that I use is like when when a baby is learning to walk and the baby falls, they're not like, well, that's the last time I'm going to try walking, like they're going to get back up and start trying again, trying again. And I think, you know, doing that, to some degree, having that trial and error, as you suggested, it doesn't mean that you're a failure if it didn't work the first time, maybe it needs a different approach, maybe the the one step that you took wasn't the exact right step for you. So I think there's a lot of different ways to think about that. And I also think that, um, you know, I like to think about like, if you think about a spice meter and when you're trying something spicy, we all have different spice tolerances, right? So you might like it more spicy than me, but I might be able to push my spice tolerance by just adding a teeny bit of spice. Um, And it doesn't like set off the alarm bells and send me, you know, to the water fountain. It's just like, oh, I noticed that it's different. I'm pushing myself a little bit out of my normal flavor routine. Um, And so that's how I like to think about sort of making changes. You don't want to, you know, set off any alarm bells to where it's like, I can't do this. This is overwhelming and it's alarming to me. You want to just get to that like, oh, this is maybe a little bit different than what I'm used to, but I could get comfortable here. Yes, definitely. And I think also the, one of the best ways to kind of get into all of the sugar stuff is to read your book, Sugar Shock, which (laughs) I, I looked through for this interview and it had really awesome information about basically everything we talked about, but what it also had was really easy tips that you can use and you can do things in your own life. Kind of like you gave that tip before about melting the blueberries in the microwave, things that are really going to help you cut back on sugar. So everyone can get that. I'm assuming anywhere books are sold, Amazon, things like that. Oh yeah. Amazon, Target, Walmart, anywhere books are sold. Yep. Cool. Well, I appreciate you talking about this. This was such an interesting topic. You gave a lot of really good insight into it. And I'm sure I'll have even more questions after this, but uh, where can people follow you to learn more about what you're doing and your tips for sugar? Yeah, they can follow me at Nutritionist Sam. So that's where I'm at. Cool. Thank you so much. Yeah, very easy. Thank you so much for coming on and chatting about all things sugar. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm glad to be with you today. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Natalie Rizzo. And if you want to learn more from me, follow me on social media at Greenleets or visit my website at greenleets.com.